From Georgia Public Broadcasting, this is On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott. Pat Mitchell has been on the front lines of three media revolutions. She was among the first women reporters and anchors for national television news. She was a big player in the rise of cable news and cable networks as president of CNN Productions and named head of PBS, just as digital media was changing how we consume information. It's been a long way from her beginnings in a home with no electricity or indoor plumbing in rural Georgia. In her new autobiography, she writes about forging ahead, largely as a single mother, learning to advocate for herself, find allies, and as she puts it, speaking the truth when silence is safer. Pat's going to be in Atlanta to talk about her book, Becoming a Dangerous Woman, on November 6th. But the 37-time Emmy winner and co-founder of TED Women is joining us to talk about it today. Pat, welcome. Thank you, Virginia. It's wonderful to be with you. Well, thank you for speaking with us. Now, your book opens with you identifying yourself as a dangerous woman for the first time. This is back in 2017. Can you set that scene for us? I had been invited to a meeting of activists and advocates to consider what actions we might take as a collective group following the polarizing election. And everyone was introducing themselves, Virginia, and I know you've been in this place where if you don't have a title and you're sitting in a group where everyone does, and they're saying, I'm the president of this, I'm the founder of that, I, I run this organization. And for the first time in my career, I didn't have a title. I had just resigned the CEO position at the Paley Center for Media. And I found myself getting more and more anxious. (laughs) And when it finally got to me, I heard myself without any pre-thought standing and saying, I'm Pat Mitchell and I'm a dangerous woman. (laughs) And so everyone laughed just as you did now. And so I added very quickly the context that came to mind, which was, well, you know, I'm 75. I have less to lose, nothing to prove. And yes, I am more impatient, more willing to take risk. Um, I want to be less politic and polite. So I'm not quite sure where it came from, but I think it was triggered, Virginia, by Eve Ensler's opening comments to the group that day when she stood in front of us and said, we're living in dangerous times. Mm. And what can we all do to support and advocate for each other and the changes that we feel are going to be necessary to um create a safe and sustainable world. So I think it was in my head, and uh, but I'd never, of course, declared myself to be dangerous before. Well, then, I had seen women living with dangers many, many times in my work. But uh, until that day, I certainly had not felt or said I was dangerous myself. Well, Eve Ensler, of course, she is the playwright of the Vagina Monologues, famously, but she's gone on to do so much other work. Um, but you've had some other very formidable women in your life, in your childhood, your grandmother. She was a Creek Cherokee woman with sixth grade education. Your difficult childhood, you had a distant, unhappy father, mother who kind of swallowed her own dreams, very strict Baptist household. Your father didn't even allow a TV in the house, uh, ironically, as, <laughs> as your career came to pass, even though he worked in an appliance shop. But you early on, you had this itch to get out of Swainsboro and see a bigger world. What were the kind of expectations for you at that time? 
The expectations for a young girl growing up in the rural, segregated South were very limited. I think I thought I could be a teacher or a nurse. I fainted at the sight of blood, so that was out. <laughs> nurse was out. Uh, so teacher became my role model, and I was so lucky to have an eighth-grade English teacher, Mrs. Reed, Mrs. Roundtree, who became Mrs. Reed. And she, I think, was the first person, other than my grandmother, who actually saw me and who listened to my dreams and who actually believed and supported my dreams, uh, that they were possible. And my dreams were, you know, just a world beyond. They were very unfocused at the time. It, it ranged from becoming a an actress to uh, becoming a senator. I mean, <laughs> they were huge and completely unrealistic, given that I had no money connections or sphere of influence. But um, but I did have a dream of what I felt would be possible for me. And I think that my grandmother instilled that very, very early. Mm. And then Mrs. Reed helped me find the path. She got me on the path to get a scholarship, to go to the university, and, and was the one who supported me all along. And it takes that, doesn't it? It yeah. takes someone who, who says, you're not crazy. Uh, no, it doesn't fit the mode. And no, it's not the model of what a young girl can be. But you can do it. Well, and she actually helped you defy your father. He wanted you to go to the teacher's college down the road. But there you are. You're at UGA. This is when they were first admitting African-American students. And you write about feeling torn between this desire. You want to participate in this civil rights movement, this activism. But you also want to be popular and accepted, not upset anybody. This is something that you've struggled with throughout your life as an activist and a journalist. So how did, how did that time at UGA shape how you towed that line? I find this is a balance that many of us, um, and in particular women, and maybe especially our generation, although I'm not surprised, Virginia, when I hear the same story from my granddaughters who mm. are in their 20s, that they're still battling with that, how much of their concern for social justice and the things they want to do to change the world and make it better, and then their need to have a life, uh, you know, all the... The, the social things that come with being popular or accepted. So it was a conflict that arose very early for me, even in high school and then certainly in college. I did try to do it all. I did march in civil rights marches and became a friend of, of uh, Charlene Hunter Galt, who was the first African-American yeah. student there. A friend maybe too uh, close uh, a definition, but I certainly was an ally and wanted to, to help and tried to help uh, her. And not that Charlene ever needed help, but I needed help because I was also in a sorority and trying to do all the other things that were uh, that made that defined college life for me then. And meanwhile, working, of course, to to support the scholarship. Um, I remember my college advisor saying to me, you know, you cannot really do it all, all at one time. And what you need to do is focus on your education and let the rest work its way out. But I, I listened somewhat to that because I knew education was my ticket to all the dreams that I saw for myself going forward. But that balance between being a journalist and advocating for the causes that mattered, wanting to be a part and being a part of the civil rights movement and the women's movement, both of which happened when I came of political age and had a lot to do with 
forming the whole way it, that I think I've lived my life. But it has been it has been a balance that I've had to walk sometimes better than other times mm. uh, throughout my life and career. Pat Mitchell is with us. She's a media executive and author of the new book, Becoming a Dangerous Woman. Well, uh, some of the things you unpack there in this book, you do make clear your views on reproductive rights and military spending, funding cuts to public media. These are all frontline culture war issues now. So how does it feel to finally come out and say all these things publicly after a, a, a lifetime of pressure to be very careful about what you say and very balanced? I don't know that I've been actually very careful, Virginia. <laughs> if you look back at, uh, at at some of the times when I have, but but you're right in that in starting what was going to be a memoir, essentially to be truthful for my grandchildren, who once asked me the question, um, were you really ever on television? And I realized that they didn't know very much about what my life had been before they came into my life so fully and gloriously. Um, so I started out to write that, and I was encouraged by mentors, mentees and mentors to tell the whole story. And as I started to write it, I realized all of these issues for me were still very much frontline challenges for the women I was mentoring today. Reproductive rights, how we're, uh, where spending is going in this country, and primarily unpacking the concepts around power and dangerousness, to use my, uh, my phrase for it now. But we have this conflicted relationship with power. And it, we need to look at it and understand it in order to deal with the challenges and the rights issues that we have fought so long and hard to obtain in this country and around the world to reach true equality of opportunity and access and representation. Well, that's, so, uh, um, the, the, that, the, that, that really is what I discovered in writing a memoir was that none of it was the past. All of it was present and current. Well, yeah, some of the issues that you talk about in equal pay for the same kind of jobs and same kind of qualifications, this comes up over and over again. You eventually, of course, left UGA. You went on to New York City uh, to teach in Virginia first, New York City to work at a magazine that folded, tried out your, your hand in television, and eventually you got a job at WBEZ in Boston. And this is an absolute powerhouse news station up in Boston. But in order to be on TV, they asked you to dye your hair blonde. So you did. And hair, by mm -hmm. the way, keeps coming up in this book. You know, you're later told you should be a redhead. No, you know. But you've gotten a lot of feedback on your appearance all your life. You were pretty patsy as a girl. You've been told you're too young, too old, too heavy, too white to be on TV. Now, the list goes on and on. What effect did that have on your sense of identity? An obsession mm. with appearance which um, many people think is is particularly southern and i do think um that we got i got a big dose of it my mother was really beautiful and always well groomed and never left the house without looking head to toe perfect even though we had no money she made her own clothes and mine i mean i would literally on sundays have matching everything from the hat to the shoes hmm. and and all of which she made staying up late at night to do that but but appearance 
was so important. I think particularly if you grew up without money, uh, it was even more important to to look well. Mm-hmm. Um, so it became an obsession. And, and when I think of the hours, Virginia, that I spent trying to get my hair look good and stay looking good and then deciding on what color it should be so that my television bosses were happy, blonde, red, as you say, and the, no, go back to brunette, uh, the endless hours combing and spraying and back combing. And um, so I, I talk openly about that because now I I feel like we need to get ready at a different level, not just to get ready um, to appear in public. My friend Jane Fonda describes putting on makeup as putting on our war paint <laughs> every day, you know, to go into combat. And and some days uh, it, it certainly feels that way. But I felt it was time for us all to just be open and honest and break the silence about all this. And I uh, I talk about a lot of that in the chapter called Getting Ready, that I want to spend my time now not spending 40 minutes on my hair. I want to spend that 40 minutes thinking about what I'm going to say with you, what I'm going to write about, what I'm going to talk about, what I'm going to activate for um, and advocate for. I think, honestly, if I had spent all the time I spent on my hair and getting perfectly coiffed and made up and, you know, dressed head to toe, uh, if I'd spent that time, I could possibly have been the U.S. senator <laughs> I once dreamed of being. <laughs> I have a friend who says that. I could have five PhDs for all the energy I tried to spend, mm-hmm. or I spent mm-hmm. trying to make a man want to love me. <laughs> <laughs> well, there again is a great exercise in time. Pat Mitchell is with us. She's executive director of TED Women and chair of both the Sundance Women's Media Center boards and author of the new book, Becoming a Dangerous Woman. You can join the conversation on our Facebook group, GBB Radio's On Second Thought. We're going to take a quick pause and be back in a minute. But we do want to mention a conversation ongoing about an interview that we did about abandoned empty malls. Catherine says people have air conditioning at home now. Even fewer people in the prime shopping age. Patricia suggests turn them into apartments. Well, we would love to hear your comments also and hear your comments on Pat Mitchell and what she's saying about inequity and power and when do you stay silent and when do you decide to speak up? I'm Virginia Prescott. Quick break. Stay with us to hear more from Pat Mitchell. This is On Second Thought. We're back with On Second Thought. I'm Virginia Prescott, picking up our conversation with Pat Mitchell. Her new book, Becoming a Dangerous Woman, is just out. She grew up in rural Georgia and worked her way up the media ladder, from defying her parents' expectations to attend UGA, all the way to hosting and producing for major TV networks. Pat has won 37 Emmys for her work producing documentaries for CNN. She's also former CEO of PBS, the first woman to hold that title, and currently serves as editorial director of TED Women, as well as chair of both the Sundance Institute and Women's Media Center boards. An impressive lady. And among the things that Pat comes across as a reporter and as host of the Emmy Award-winning Woman to Woman show segments are some issues like sexual assault and abuse. So note that we will be touching on some of those difficult subjects in this conversation, maybe not appropriate for all listeners. Well, I want to get back to you know, your time at WBEZ, because this is one of your big first TV things. You did go on, of course, later to national television. But there's a, there's a moment when you walk into your boss's office to ask for a raise. And I wonder if you could read just a little bit of his reaction for us. I'd be happy to. This is uh, after I have 
ask for the first raise, and I'm already doing four jobs and being paid for one. <laughs> Deadly silence. Then the man who had hired me, in spite of his misgivings about my age and motherhood, who had advocated for me when new opportunities arose, walked over and sat in the chair beside me, frowned reflectively, and said, You know, I was walking through the grocery store last week and noticed that hamburgers are now one thirty-nine a pound. Now, just a couple of weeks ago, the price was one ninety-eight. The value of that hamburger meat varies a lot. Talent in television is like hamburger meat. You never know when people are going to lose their appetite for hamburgers and look for something new. <laughs> Pat Mitchell. <laughs> Reading every, every thought I had about a raise, Virginia, went flying out of my head as I envisioned myself in, in that little plastic container well, with the sell-by date. The sell-by date. I think that's very important for, you know, especially women in television or in movies, and we know that. And you were later told, you know, well, you're over 40. Maybe you should get some work done. But, then, uh-huh. but this man, he then asked you out for dinner and drinks to discuss the yeah. prospect of a raise, which you declined. But, you know, this is this is also something that I think so many women of that kind of first wave in the workforce describe, that they just came up with tactics, ways to get around the kind of harassment that they faced at work, which is so different, of course, from women, the millennials of the Me Too generation, who I think really helped lead the idea that this is not okay. So, so what do you think is different for women coming forward today than it was for you and your colleagues at the time? Women today at least have a platform, uh, like Me Too and other ways in which they can write about and go public with their experiences. But I think it's important for us to remember, in spite of how you know, good it feels, that there are many ways now to break the silence around sexual harassment, that Toronto Burke told me last week that there have been 17 million Me Too stories on that platform and less than 400 perpetrators. Hmm had ever been faced any kind of consequences. So, you know, it's still going on. Last night I was at a book reception and at least five women, some in my generation, some very much younger, came up and told me their own sexual harassment stories. So the reason I share mine, and I only shared an example of what happened rather regularly to me and to all, I think, most, if not all, of the women who were in on that first wave of women into television and is still happening. But had we come forward, had we trusted one another and broken through the barriers of protect your turf, stay, you know, be sure you're, you're in your silo, don't, don't ally with other women, if we had broken through some of those barriers, uh, we might have saved many other women from having those experiences if we'd gone public earlier. Well, um, so today, at least there's that option. Right. But this is a part of a whole culture. And this is something that you explore throughout the book, how you allow yourself with other women. And, and you reflect, uh, as I have found in my own career, I'm so sorry to say that oftentimes the people who have been thwarting me the most are other women. So how, you know, this you is kind my of... saddest moment. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I at every women's conference, as you know, I go to many. Mm-hmm. That's my saddest. You're a conference when... addict. Self-confessed. <laughs> <I am. laughs> Self-confessed. But that's my I, 
that moment always comes when someone, usually a younger woman, younger woman says that to me, and I, I will still, I will go to my grave fighting for this one thing, if nothing else, that if we supported one another, advocated for one another, promoted for one another, that is the single biggest lever for positive change and true equality that exists. And it exists in our power to do that. Because I've seen it, Virginia. I've seen it happen when women come together, form a coalition, ally together around problem solving. I've seen the difference that we can make. Um, and I, I'd love to share that something that has stayed with me through the sad stories of that I didn't get the support I needed or someone sharing a story of a terrible woman boss. I always think that all of us have been, uh, we have modeled ourselves after the power paradigm we know best, mm. which has been one primarily modeled by the people who hold power, in most cases men. And Bella Abzug, the colorful congresswoman from New York, told me in 1999, along with a thousand other women who were listening to her, in the next century, women must change the nature of power rather than power changing the nature of women. And believing that is possible is what gives me hope and keeps me optimistic about the change we can make and are making around the world when we come together and support each other. I want to just pull, pick up that thread here because your boss, when you left BEZ to go and accept a job filling in, you replaced Maury Povich at Panorama, a very popular talk show. He said to you, it's all downhill for you from here. You know, look at all that I've given you. And this is not the first time you've heard deprecating things from men. When you landed a job on national television, your father says, well, just looks like you're reading to me. You know, uh, it, this is... It's so hurtful, but what does that do to your resolve? And and I'd love to just talk about the process a little bit because the first response is like, oh, maybe they're you know what I mean the the, the way that mm -hmm. we doubt ourselves before we figure out that through the support of other people, through looking at reality, it can be very different. This is a question that I struggle to find the right answer to, Virginia, with the young women that I mentor all over the world because it's, it comes up in every single conversation. And I wish I could say, well, this has been my process for getting from a no to a yes. It's just not that clear. But I do know that from the beginning, I felt that when someone told me no, that I couldn't accept that because that meant giving up everything that I thought was possible. So I, I had to take some risk and leaps of faith in myself. And sometimes it didn't work out. One of the things I share in the book very openly are the failures, mm -hmm. the mistakes, the times when um, I pushed past a no and, and it didn't go well. But most of the time it did go well, because most of the time I believed in where I wanted to go. Uh, and pushing past the no's is essential to get to the eventual yes. What is There's a great quote from Eleanor Roosevelt that I keep on my desk, which says, never allow a person to tell you no unless they also have the power to tell you yes. Mm. So I, I, I think somewhere... Uh, and I don't remember the first time I read that, but I do know that I keep it in my head 
And I also find around the world when I have been working with women who have faced so much more in terms of danger and in terms of barriers than you and I will know in in this country where we have so many more freedoms and privileges. And I've seen them have the worst kind of oppression and still be resilient and joyful and optimistic and get up every day and make something happen. So somewhere, what I have taken from them and what I have taken from my own life of believing in myself and having it push me forward, um, you know, has has kept me, has helped me find my own resilience. Becoming a Dangerous Woman is Pat Mitchell's new book. We're talking about that with her today. And one of the things that you did is help assemble a voice for women on television. Now, this is a time one of the no's you got was nobody's going to watch a show all about women. And you work on this show with an all-female production staff called Women to Women. Um, that was in Los Angeles, but then it later aired in segments on the Today Show. But this is where you are also talking to other women and you hear these uh, experiences of women as experiencing sexual abuse as a child and realize, you know, in pretty much your middle age that, that you were part of this, that your father abused you as a child. So it's not just the failures, but the realizations of things that are very real in your life. And we'd just love to hear about that process for you, because as we know, so many women in America are the survivors of sexual assault and incest. The program Woman to Woman, by the way, was national. It was the first nationally syndicated uh, program uh, of its nature. And gratefully, we we won the Emmy, so we pushed past that no and getting it uh, sold to television stations all over the country. And the purpose of it was to have a real conversation every day with real women, meaning not famous women, just women living their lives and struggling through many challenges. And we took on subjects. When you look at now the things we took on in the mid-80s, it was kind of remarkable um, because no one was talking about these issues. But because we had an all-female staff, because we were talking with women every day in an intimate kind of environment, although it was being seen by uh, millions of people, it was a very different kind of television. And and yes, we did a program on sexual abuse. And in the middle of it, I did... Um, come to a realization, and I describe it much more um, in depth in the book. And doing so, sharing it in the book was uh, extremely, extremely difficult. And I spent a lot of time thinking whether I should or should not share it because it was a secret that I had kept for nearly, well, more than 40 years. But it had affected my life as keeping secrets like this do. And I had to come to terms with it. I fortunately found a, a terrific therapist, and I worked my way through recovering memory and working my way towards um, survival and, um, and, and realizing the impact that it had in my life. Mm-hmm. What I am finding now in just the few days since the book has been out is that at every reading and every interview, um, many, many, many survivors of similar stories line up and tell me either they have come to terms with it or they have not. And um, how do I 
suggest that they do. And so the problem is much more widespread than we like to believe. Um, And I felt that if my sharing my story and people seeing here I am at 76, survived, (laughs) um, thriving uh, in a very good life that I feel incredibly privileged to enjoy with a loving family, a loving husband and children and grandchildren, you know, that that's possible. So that's why I share the survivor story. Mm -hmm. It is one of the things women have done for generations. And that was the whole basis of woman to woman, sharing the stories like we have always done in small circles or in public circles Mm -hmm. in order to help each other get past um, the difficult times and on to surviving and thriving. Well, not only thriving, but, you know, standing up to some very powerful alpha males. Fidel Castro, you spoke with Fidel Castro, got a first exclusive interview with him for CNN. And then later, I'll let readers read this, but had to meet him in a bathing suit, dripping wet, which is quite a story. <laughs> I think we have to leave, leave that for We're readers. We're going to leave that it's... for readers. <laughs> it, it, shall we just say very quickly, though, that was not a sexual encounter. Yeah, exactly. I want to make sure that, that we we uh, make uh, that clear. That, uh, But, you know, th- I got to do that and to meet Gorbachev and interview 600 other world leaders mm. because of that extraordinary visionary entrepreneur, Ted Turner, uh, for whom I, I led uh, a documentary division. And so all of those interviews are, are part of the extraordinary experience of working with Ted. Another alpha male, but certainly someone that you learned a lot of lessons from. Um, so I just want to, we're going to have to close in just a couple minutes, and there's so much more in the book, and I really want to encourage readers to go hear her speak and, and read the book, because there are so many lessons for just getting through to the next thing. But I wonder for you, Pat, as somebody who has, you know, watched you were part of that first initial wave of women's movement. And now, as you said, your granddaughters are experiencing some of the same things. But just quickly, we're talking also at an age when media is under attack, you know, the enemy of the people. And of course, that horrible video that let's just acknowledge the White House mm. disavowed. Yes. But but that the idea that those who are having these kind of conversations, those who are raising other questions are indeed targets. Um, Just in the time that we have left, wonder if you have thoughts on that as somebody who's a media executive. My main thought about that every day is that I am so grateful for public media, (laughs) in particular NPR, because um, I, I led PBS during a time of assault from the government, but there has never been anything like we are facing now. And we all know that we cannot have a democracy. We cannot have a free and open society without free and open information. And at every level in every, nearly every country in the world, we're seeing the efforts to have that, for journalists to do their work, to report the information, the truth. Um, We don't even know what truth and reporting is anymore, uh, except I'd like to say on NPR and PBS, Um, because I believe that. We we have to protect that with our lives, because indeed, our democracy depends on it. Pat Mitchell, thank you so much for speaking with us. What a pleasure. Thank you, Virginia. Pat Mitchell, author of the new autobiography, Becoming a Dangerous Woman, co-founder and editorial director of TED Women. She's on her way to Atlanta to talk about her book on November 6th at the Marcus Jewish Community Center of Dun- in Dunwoody. 
Stick around for more On Second Thought. We're back with On Second Thought from GPB. I'm Virginia Prescott. The 2019 Elevate Atlanta Art and Culture Festival began yesterday. It's an annual event hosted by the City of Atlanta's Mayor's Office of Cultural Affairs. The week-long festival is taking place in the historic downtown Pittsburgh neighborhood of Atlanta. The temporary art program will feature exhibitions, performances, screenings, and other cultural events. And this year's Elevate is curated by the African Diasporic Art Museum of Atlanta and its executive director, Dr. Fah- He's also a critically acclaimed painter who we've had on the show before. Fahamo is joining me in the studio. Hello. Hey, hey. It's great to be here again. Well, glad to have you with us. We have another repeat offender here. (laughs) (laughs) Rihanna Brown is founder of Comanse Dance Theater, which is behind one of the featured performances this year. She's also been with us. Thank you for coming back. Thanks for having me. All right. So I'm looking at the flyers for this year's event. They say Elevate Pittsburgh. Why the focus on this particular neighborhood for the festival? Well, one of the things that the Office of Cultural Affairs has been doing in the last couple of years is moving the Elevate Festival around the city to activate and, no pun intended, elevate uh, the various neighborhoods in the city. Um, so last year it was in the Cascade Corridor um, off of Cascade Road, and this year they decided to do it in Pittsburgh, which is a um, historic black neighborhood in the city, but it's now beginning to experience some of the Uh, effects of gentrification and and new development. And so uh, it seemed like a really particularly interesting time to engage with that community, which has in the past seen a lot of sort of economic and um, other forms of oppression. And now as it goes through these new changes and new developments, you know, there's a lot of uh, trepidation from people who live in the neighborhood about erasure and all these kinds of things. And so we wanted to be able to engage with some of those those concerns and themes. Now, Elevate began back in 2011. Back then, it was made possible not by the city of Atlanta, but by the coordination of commissioned artists and the local businesses that Mm -hmm. donated space and hotel rooms and food. So how does the community play into Elevate Atlanta's success and and goals? Well, this year is actually really great. I I, I had the opportunity to um, uh, curate Elevate back in 2016, I think it was. Uh, And it was in downtown fairly popular district. Uh, But this year's experience was completely different. Um, The community in Pittsburgh was very much engaged and very much vocal about the kinds of things that they wanted to see and uh, experience and the things that they were and were not comfortable with happening in their community, which was really rich. What we've been able to, to do as a result is really a collaboration between the neighborhood and um, and the Office of Cultural Affairs and the artists that have been selected to work with them. And so it's really a dialogue that I think uh, oftentimes not accomplished when, you know, organizations come into neighborhoods and want to do events. You know, they often right. kind of slap their they things on. They just sort of land. Right. In, and, yeah. and this was really more of a symbiotic relationship where we work hand in hand with the community to develop these ideas and to put forward a a festival that engages their concerns, but also their hopes and dreams for the community. Well, uh, Rihanna, for you, you've Mm -hmm. been performing Skid. We talked to you uh, on this program about Skid, your performance. So how do you kind of tailor that to a local community? Yes, so this is um, actually my first time restaging a big show that I've choreographed, and so it's definitely been an experience as far as doing that. Um, But interesting enough, Skid pretty much falls in line with what the Elevate Festival um, seeks to do, especially in the Pittsburgh area. So by focusing on um, gentrification and homelessness, we seek to bring light to 
the voices and the stories that are often overlooked and kind of pushed to the side, whether that's pushed to the side physically in forms of skid row and a lot of people that experience homelessness or just kind of pushed to the side um, that a lot of people who experience gentrification feel like that erasure is coming to their community. So a lot of that is already prevalent in, as far as skid goes. Um, and for this particular show, we have a smaller cast and uh, half of the cast is new dancers and half of the cast is old dancers, so it's a completely different experience. There's some new choreography, some old choreography, so we're calling it Skid Revisited since it's a little different. So Fahamu, Elevate officially became an annual downtown arts program at the Mayor's Office of Cultural Affairs. This was back in 2012. City very quick to prop up Elevate as an important cultural event. So uh, for you as the curator of this event, what is the process working with the city to put Elevate on? Uh, it's always a great opportunity to sit across from Miss Camille Love. She's a veteran um, in the arts here in the city, and she would ask for you know my 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 team to come up with a concept that we could curate around. And this year's theme, uh, we landed on cultural capital. Mm -hmm. um, as in the past, it's been like social city, right. enlightened, mm -hmm. fila, forever. Mm -hmm. I love it. Man. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so once we have established a theme, we put out a call to artists around the city to respond um, to that theme and then we go through a selection process. So cultural capital is such an interesting concept. I mean the idea that it's not just the money that you have in a place, it's the connections. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm wondering how, you know, for you, Rihanna, mm -hmm. Skid has been a production of, of sort of social justice through movement. Mm -hmm. So how do you interpret all of these different forces that uh, Fahama was talking about in movement? Mm -hmm. I think for me, um, when, it's, when I started working on Skid, I was very interested in what it felt like to be pushed to the side in different ways um, and then the ways that our bodies respond to that not just physically but also emotionally and spiritually um, and mentally how do we internalize that kind of pushing to the side and there's lots of different responses um, that you can see in the movement of the dancers so some of the dancers are more docile in the way that they accept that kind of pushing to the side whereas others we have um, a crump soloist in the show as well um, so his movement is a lot more intense um, and the goal is to get the audience to question like what are the different ways that you might respond to this type of um, pushing or dehumanization or othering of yourself and then that way as an audience member it's easy for you to step into the work and find a way to relate to it whether you relate to the anger or the joy or the happiness or the sadness or the pain or what have you or to the way the movement is the mo or the music that goes with there's all these different layers involved in the show um, so that's kind of how it all relates and, and it's all about <laughs> true movement all you know nonverbal for the most part um yes we have two spoken word artists in the show and then there's of course like the lyrics for some of the songs which are tailored towards the meaning of the show and um, we have lots of Kendrick Lamar um, a little Mahalia Jackson as well, some Miles Davis, so lots of black sounds from different eras. But yeah, for the most part, it's mostly movement that's used to Terry. That's Rayanna Brown. She's founder of Come On Say Dance Theater, uh, which is one of the featured performers of this year's Elevate Festival. Also with me is executive director of the African Diasporic Art Museum, Dr. Fahamu Peku. He is the organizer, curator of this year's event. It's in the Pittsburgh neighborhood of Atlanta. So, all right, so let's talk about some of the other stuff that is going on. This is not just art and culture, but economics. Yesterday, I saw the opening of the P 
Pyramid Grocery Store in, in Pittsburgh, billed as a reimagined grocery store. So what does that mean? So uh, in the Pittsburgh community, like many uh, economically depressed uh, communities, it is a food desert. And the one uh, store in that neighborhood that one can find food items in is called the Pyramid uh, Grocery Store, which is owned by a black woman. She's the only black female business owner in the Pittsburgh community. Uh, and we saw an opportunity there to engage, you know, the stigma of food deserts um, and to also think about that within the context of cultural capital, you know, the ways in which we nourish ourselves um, and the way our communities nourish and feed us. Um, and so what we've been able to do is collaborate with artists, interior designers, uh, sign makers, uh, and people who can help to reimagine what this store could be for the neighborhood. We've um, worked with local food growers to provide fresh fruit and vegetables for the store. So, you know, uh, Miss Chloe, the owner of the store, uh, these are, are many of her own ideas for what she wanted to see in the store. And we just tried to work with her to help facilitate those things so that this store, the Pyramid Grocery Store, could provide more to the community and be more of a resource for the community uh, and be more impactful in that way. That's Chloe Floyd, I yes. think is her name. Mm -hmm. But there are the more traditional cultural events mm -hmm. too. Tonight uh, there's going to be a screening of a documentary called Suppress the Fight to Vote. And mm -hmm. we did, of course, see long lines and questions of voter suppression here in Atlanta and throughout Georgia. Mm -hmm. How does the documentary expand on that conversation? So in addition to, you know, elevating the community through the arts, we want to also elevate the community through engagements that empower them, again, with the grocery store, that empower them, you know, through food and uh, business development. Um, and so we're trying different ways of, of entering the conversation of, of cultural capital. Um, with the Suppress the Fight to Vote film, uh, you know, it's, it's all about uh, the way that voter disenfranchisement has impacted particularly rural communities in Georgia. Um, and uh, there'll be a panel discussion, there'll be voter registration opportunities there as well. Um, and so we're, we're, we're doing more than just bringing art. We're, we're we're bringing life and experience to the community. And part of the art is tomorrow night there'll be a screening of The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Mm -hmm. It was released earlier this year, did really well at the Sundance Film Festival. We're going to hear just a clip from the trailer. It was really a visually absolutely beautiful film. Uh, Jimmy Fails, an actor and artist, stars in the film, and Jonathan Major, some great performances. It got a directing award and a special jury prize at Sundance. But this is about gentrification in San Francisco. The plot could resonate for people in Atlanta. What is the connection you're trying to make here? So this really kind of centers on what Rihanna was talking about, this idea of erasure and pushing people out of spaces. And as mm -hmm. anyone who knows anything about San Francisco knows, there are a lot of people being pushed out uh, because the cost of living has gone through the roof. And, you know, just something as simple as a room, not even an entire apartment can cost you up upwards of $2,000 a month, you know? Uh, and so there are, again, sincere concerns from people in a number of neighborhoods in Atlanta uh, that are, are, are feeling the uh, encroaching gentrification and, and push for so-called progress uh, mm -hmm. in neighborhoods that are outpacing people's ability to maintain their homes and uh, you know, pricing them out of being able to rent homes or apartments in communities. And as you know, the the inner city of Atlanta 
you know, goes through these kinds of shifts. We wanted to be able to address that and uh, to be able to raise questions and conversations around those kind of concerns. Mm-hmm. Um, I think in many ways what we're doing with raising this conversation of cultural capital through Elevate is is about giving voice to the community, but also inviting the developers and the um, architects and the city planners to also be a part of this conversation and to hear from the people who live in these neighborhoods so that, you know, we can we can try to work towards more equitable development. Mm-hmm. Well, the, so oftentimes with, especially with these kind of community events where you are highlighting some of those issues that are really social justice issues, so homelessness, mm-hmm. um, food equity, mm-hmm. gentrification, it's often the same people who show up for that, right. right? So so how do you avoid preaching to the choir and inviting those developers and architects in? Are they participating in this in any way? Yeah, so we've actually had some uh, input from developers. And one of the uh, projects which will open on Thursday night um, is called a Ways of Seeing Exhibition, um, where we've actually interviewed members of the community to ask them what their vision of their neighborhood might look like and then had architects do renderings of what those visions may be. Um, the, the idea of cultural capital was, was diverse and rich enough that it allows us multiple entry points into, you know, how we can engage these conversations. Mm-hmm. Well, Elevate also has a screening of a, a much older film mm-hmm. on Saturday, a showing of Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing from 1989. Let's just hear a clip. Hey, hey Sal, how come you the brothers on a wall here? You want brothers on a wall? Get your own place. You can do what you want to do. You can put your brothers and uncles and nieces and nephews, your stepfather, stepmother, whoever you want, you see? But this is my pizzeria. American Italians on the wall only. Take it easy, pal. And you, hey, don't stop me today. What? Yeah, that might be fine, Sal, but uh, you, you own this. Rarely do I see any American Italians eating in here. All I see is black folks. So since we spend much money here, we do have some sex. Yep. Spike Lee was just in Atlanta on Saturday to accept Morehouse College's first Spike Lee Award for Social Impact in Filmmaking. Graduated from Morehouse in 1979. So then you're screening this film as a part of Elevate Atlanta. How do you, how do how does Do the Right Thing made 30 years ago contribute to this conversation of Atlanta's present? Well, I mean, it's, it's what some 30 years later, and this conversation is just as visceral as it was back then, um, and maybe even more so. Uh, you know, because Do the Right Thing takes place in a neighborhood in Brooklyn. I don't know. That that people in Atlanta necessarily had the same relationship to gentrification that Brooklyn has had, you know, for the last few decades. Uh, and now Atlanta is really sort of experiencing uh, that, that, that same sort of impact and same, uh, you know, concerns and fears. And the, the themes in that, that story are, are very much relatable to um, today. Boy, just hearing that clip makes me think of the opening credit sequence with Rosie Perez just fierce dancing and and makes me think of what you're talking about Rihanna there the power of dancing what what do you think of um i think as far as what you were saying about the visceralness of the movement I did lots of research for Skid, but one of the most important books I think that really resonated with the work that I created is Hard Times Require Furious Dancing by Alice Walker. <laughs> I could just go on for uh, about it for like hours, but one thing that I think is very important is she says um, something about the beauty and the grace of being able to find line and form among all of the chaos of what's going on, among all of the heartbreak, the joy, the sadness, the anger, whatever you're feeling, that ability to find rhythm and movement and that 
just natural visceral release that at some point all of us have felt, whether it's when you sigh and you drop your shoulders or you dance with your family and you're not worried about what you look like. It's just about having a good time and being in that present moment and in essence, asserting your humanity. I tell my dancers all the time that I think that going out and dancing and having a good time in itself is a social justice act. Social justice doesn't always need to look like protesting and holding signs, and that part is very important, of course, but also being able to relax and just be yourself. And so I think in that way, that opening scene and then for our show, the finale of our first act, which is very like um, based on African diaspora dancing and has lots of house footwork and different hip hop styles. And it is about that release and that joy and how asserting that and just allowing yourself to be is a social justice act. Sounds like a way to elevate. Yes, indeed. <laughs> That's Rihanna Brown, founder of Commence Dance Theater. We'll be hosting an event on Friday as part of the 2019 Elevate Atlanta Art and Cultural Festival. Her event takes place at the Carver Steam Academy Auditorium. Thank you so much for being Thank here. Thank you. And Fahamu Peku, he's a critically acclaimed painter and curator of this year's Elevate Atlanta. Thank you so much for your time. It's my pleasure. That is our show for today. We're going to leave you with the song San Francisco. Be sure to wear flowers in your hair, but not that famous version that may spring to mind. It's a cover sung by Michael Marshall, best known for his hook on the Bay Area rap anthem, I Got Five on it. So here's that song from the soundtrack from The Last Black Man in San Francisco. If you're going to San Francisco Be sure to wear On Second Thought is produced by Amelia Brock, LaRaven Taylor, Priya Mahadevan, and Jake Troyer. Jesse Neiswanger is our engineer. Our interns are Alexis Thomason and Jessica Lowell. Don Smith is our Dean of Grammar. Amy Kiley is senior producer. Our executive producer is Mary Lynn Ryan. I'm Virginia Prescott. Thanks so much for spending some time with On Second Thought.